to a totally different place. We just finished our series in 1 Thessalonians, and now we are starting a series in the very last book of the Old Testament. Uh, it's not the Italian prophet Malachi. It is someone named Malachi, or if you want to say it in Hebrew, it would be Malachi. But, uh, so Malachi, the book of Malachi. And we're going to spend uh, a couple of months here, um, eight messages going through this book, and, uh, and then we'll, Lord willing, move on to 2 Corinthians after that, but, but we just want to camp out in this book of the Bible. God has given us His entire Word. All of His Word is His Word, and all of it is meant to equip us, to teach us about Jesus, to equip us in following after Jesus, so every book of the Bible is important. And this is a wonderful book, so we're going to dig in and spend some time over the next couple months. But let me ask you a question related to this book. Do you know what a slump is? In the sporting world, a slump is when an athlete or a team stops performing at their normal or expected level. And as Boston fans, we've known uh, some serious slumps in the past. We had a almost 90-year World Series slump, right, from 1918 to 2004 when the Red Sox I couldn't win the World Series. Um, just this past year, the Philadelphia Eagles went into a slump. After beating the Patriots in the Super Bowl, they, they went 4-6 and six in their first 10 games before somehow getting enough wins to make it to the postseason. Try not to gloat. We have friends in that area who uh, you need to be sensitive to. But they hit a slump. Uh, perhaps more seriously and uh, importantly, uh, there can be spiritual and moral slumps that we go into, and, and really even whole cultures go through. Uh, some might say that the English-speaking world right now is in a spiritual slump. Uh, there have been, uh, has been a pattern of revivals over the years where, where there were these seasons where God worked in the church, where there was just a, a deeper understanding, a deeper faith and vitality in the truths of the gospel and the truths of God's Word, and a greater effectiveness in, in reaching the world, loving the world, and communicating these things to the, to the world. And there are these seasons that have gone on where, where that was really pronounced, and we call them revivals. And uh, There were revivals uh, in 1910 in Wales, and then Azusa Street in California, Korea and China. There was a big revival season around then, and then post-World War II. And then some would also say there was a revival in the Jesus movement of the 70s, the late 70s and early 80s. But also, people would say, well, there really hasn't been anything like that in, in a while. And uh, would say that in the United States right now, we are uh, at, in the greatest decline spiritually than we've ever seen as a country. So there's a slump, a spiritual slump that, that we can be in, and perhaps we are in, in our country. Though I, might, I must say for New England, we're in one of the most pros gospel, uh, prosperous gospel seasons that we've had in probably 100 years in terms of church planting and people coming to a new faith in Christ. So New England seeing something different, may that happen for the rest of the country. But there's this idea of spiritual slumps. And, and, and they affect cultures, but also you know, people make up cultures. So they affect people. Um, and often in, in spiritual slumps, there are people who are affected. And often in revivals, God uses somebody or a group of people who say, help us, Lord. Get us out of this slump. And God acts. Well, if we are in a slump or you feel like you're in a slump, I have really good news for you. God cares about you. 
God cares about your spiritual slump and He wants to rescue you. And one of the, the means, probably one of the most important means, is, is through His Word, and in particular through the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is written originally for God's people when they were in a spiritual slump. And the whole book, the entire book, is really addressing them in their spiritual slump and calling them to fresh life. And so I trust as we go through this series uh, that you will feel encouragement from God. You will hear His call to call you out of any sort of spiritual slump you might be in to, to walk in the fullness of life that He has. So with that in mind, let's pray. And we're going to look at the first section of Malachi and trust that God will speak to us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this wonderful book and its truths and how we need these truths. Oh God, I need them personally. We all need them personally. We need them as a whole church. Uh, and our culture, of course, needs these truths as well. So we ask you, Lord, to speak to us. I pray, would you help me, Lord? I am weak and needy of you, but you're good and faithful, and you're the living God, and this is your living word. So speak, O Lord, and be glorified in this time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Look with me at Malachi chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 5. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau, Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We're going to dig into these uh, five verses. And uh, this is what this is teaching us, that knowing the love of God makes all the difference in being rescued from a spiritual slump. Um, that in order to be rescued from a spiritual slump, to get out of it, we need to know the love of God. And this is the first thing that Malachi, uh, that God says through Malachi to His people. He speaks to them about His love because He knows that that is what we need. We need His love to shine on us to rescue us from a spiritual slump. And so that's what this section's about. So we're going to dig in and look at, look at how this teaches us that truth. So God says right in the beginning, I have loved you. And that's a verb form that means I have loved you for a long time. I have been loving you. I have loved you. It's, it has a history. I've loved you. I've loved you over the course of time, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved, it, loved us? I actually... I love the way the New Living Translation puts this. Verse 2, it says, I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? That's the sentiment here uh, that the people are having towards the Lord. It's like, really, Lord? How have you loved us? And, and by the way, the, the doubt that they're experiencing is understandable. This was written for the people of God after they had come back from exile. So a brief Recap of the history of the people of God in the Old Testament. God rescues them from slavery and oppression in Egypt. He brings them out powerfully, dramatically. 
Because He loves them and He's promised to rescue them, they come out of Egypt in power. They're called to covenant with God. They're called to this relationship with God where because of His love and rescue of them, they're to believe Him and obey Him. So He calls them into covenant under Moses as His people. And they are brought into this promised land, this new land flowing with milk and honey. And, and they're to live with the Lord at the centers. And the temple is built right there in the center of their country as the place where they can journey and encounter God, where, where their sins are covered through the uh, sacrificial system. They're given the Word of God, the law of God, which is the ways of God, how to live in relationship to Him and one another, and to experience His kingdom through that, His peace. And, and it's wonderful. It, it, it goes pretty well for some time. And then uh, for uh, actually almost about a thousand years, they're in that place. But what happens near the end of that is they stray. They walk away from believing God and walking in His ways. And, and they get into some pretty terrible, evil things. Uh, including uh, temple prostitution, sorts of things, sacrificing their children to false gods, and all sorts of things. And, and God warns them, tells them repent, over 400 years basically, warns them, but they refuse to listen. And so eventually He brings punishment. His promised punishment. By the way, He had said, if you guys wander away, this is what's going to happen. And guess what? After 400 years of pleading with them to repent and return, but them refusing, He brings to bear what He had promised. And that is to bring a foreign army into the land, to devastate the land, and to deport them out of their beloved land. That's called the exile. That's what had gone on. But amazingly, God in His great love, for He said, I have loved you, He promises to restore them, to return them to the land, even though they didn't deserve it. And so after 70 years, they're brought back. And it's amazing, actually. Just historically, by the way, it is really amazing. If you study the history of peoples, conquered peoples who are deported and sent elsewhere don't ever return. But God brings back His people to the land in His graciousness. And so, Malachi is writing to the people who have returned. But it's, it's about a generation or so after the initial return. At first, things were really good. At first, they, they came back and they were just amazed that they got to go back. And then they came back and God spoke to them through prophets and gave them leaders and they actually rebuilt the temple. And they could worship at the temple again. And things seemed really exciting. And there were all these promises, both in prophets before the exile and ones after the exile, saying, I'm going to restore you. And the years coming are, are going to be glorious years. And so there's excitement, there's faith, there's, there's just this awe and wonder. And what appears to have happened over time is when things didn't materialize in the, the way they expected on the timetable they expected, they, they started to, to doubt. Perhaps disappointment got the best of them. They, they had anticipated this glorious restoration and yet they weren't seeing it. And as a matter of fact, some of their former territories that were under the original land were now occupied by other people. And relevant to our section, the area in southern Judah, which was an important part of the original land, was taken over by Esau's descendants, the Edomites. And so that was just in their faces. Uh, that was part of their doubt. They had, um, they, there's a lot to that. The, the Edomites actually had, had betrayed them and stabbed them in the back in the, in the exile process. They had betrayed really their, their own flesh and blood because they were related. Uh, ethnically, biologically. And, and, and God had promised actually to deal with them and now here they were occupying their own territory. 
And not only that, they had governors in the surrounding areas who were making life really hard for them. And, and you can read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. It, it appears that Ezra and Nehemiah are right around the same time as Malachi. The wall around the city was broken down. They're, they were struggling economically. They had a bad, some bad harvest. They had pest infestations. And so, as a result of all these things, they went from being hopeful, full of faith and obedience, to being cynical. And cynicism had taken over. And spiritual malaise was their MO. And it infected everything. So when God says, I have loved you, they say, really? Are you kidding me? That's what they're thinking. Because that's how they responded to these situations, these circumstances. And I hope you can see in that uh, something that's very relatable. Uh, we do the same thing. When we go through trials, it's very easy to kind of lose our way. It's easy to start defining who God is and whether He loves us or not by what's going on and how well things are going. And so when the disappointments mount up, when the suffering continues, when the circumstances are unfavorable, when we see failures and setbacks, it's really easy to say, really? You love us? Those things act like a storm. And, and they affect us. They, they cloud our way and we can't see through to the love of God. On November 27, 1905, the ship Matafa left the Duluth, Minnesota harbor towing a barge full of iron ore onto Lake Superior. They left in the afternoon and that evening a severe northeaster uh, came along full of high winds and snow. Uh, the northeaster is later named after the ship. And this ship, after battling the storm for hours, it realized it, it, it needed to seek safe harbor, so it turned back to Duluth the next day for fear of being lost on the lake. They made their way for the for the Duluth, narrow Duluth ship canal that led into the harbor. But in the storm, it was impossible to really make out where the canal was. There was a lighthouse on the south side of the canal, but none on the north side. The captain of the Matafa had them cut their barge loose and attempted to make it for the canal. As he came into the canal, a huge wave swamped them. They T-boned on the north pier, uh, breaking the ship, breaking off the rudder, and grounding the ship 100 feet off shore in the storm, taking on water. No one could reach them in the massive waves and the storm and in the freezing cold water. It wasn't until the next day that they were able to get to the ship and they were able to rescue 15 of the 24 crew, but nine were lost in the storm. As a result of that, they decided they needed to build another lighthouse on the north side. And by 1910, this new lighthouse was in operation and there has never been such a tragic loss of life or ship since then. The point of the story is a good lighthouse is a lifesaver in a storm. And that's what's going on here in Malachi. The people are in a storm and they've lost their way. They can't see through their circumstances. They can't see through their disappointments. And, and they are doubting God and they need a light, the light of God's love to shine through the storm. And the way that God has designed things is His love is that light. The truth of His amazing love is that light. And when we are aware of the light, it guides us through the storms. That's what's going on here in Malachi. 
Now God does this in a certain way here. He first says, I have loved you. And in that, he's summing up the entire Bible as they would have known it. The Bible is a message of God's amazing love of people that are undeserving. So just saying, I have loved you, should have been enough. But they doubt, and so God brings very specific things relevant to them and where they were. He points out two key truths in his love related to the circumstances they were dealing with with these Edomites who had displaced them. He says first that He has chosen them, and second that He has redeemed them. And we're going to see that as we go through this. Um, they, were, they were likely, as I said, complaining about the Edomites, these descendants of Esau, who, who uh, were occupying their land. And they were probably aware of what God had said about the Edomites in Ezekiel chapter 35. We could put that up. There's a prophetic word about the Edomites because of how they had treated them back when that foreign army had come into the land. It says in Ezekiel 35, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir, and that's speaking of Edom where they lived, I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go. And so think of the people of God at this time struggling with their circumstances and then seeing that the Edomites actually live in their land. And then thinking of this promise and thinking really... And yet God is pointing them to the fact that He has chosen Jacob over Esau. And that's the, the roots. That's their common forefathers. They were brothers. Jacob and Esau are fraternal twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. And, uh, and Esau was the firstborn in, in the birth. Uh, he came out first. and Therefore, according to their culture, he had the birthright. He had the privilege of being the special son uh, as the firstborn. Not only that, but, but Esau was probably the more gifted in certain ways. He was great at hunting. And he was a like, strong, manly man sort of guy. And that's what his father Isaac liked. And so Esau was, in, in many ways, the chosen favorite one by appearances. Yet God, in His mercy, chooses Jacob as the one through whom the line of God's people would be formed. The tribes would come through Jacob, not through Esau. Jacob is the secondborn. He doesn't merit being chosen because of that. He's kind of the runt compared to Esau. And he's also a conniver. He's a manipulator. His name basically means that, conniver. He's not worthy of being chosen. And, and the Bible makes that clear in the storyline. And yet God in His mercy chooses Jacob. Even though he hadn't earned it. He doesn't have legal merit. He doesn't have character merit. And yet God chooses this undeserving one. And so God says here, Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated. He's reminding the Israelites of his Amazing, merciful love towards them. That, that He has chosen them. That He reached out to them. They did not merit His love, but He chose to love them. He's loved them from eternity, He says. And therefore, chose them. Now, we have to understand how those words love and hate are used here. They're not used in an absolute sense. It's, about a, ma it's a matter of degree. So it's not that God hates Esau with all his being or something like that, but compared to His love for Jacob, it could be called hate. 
Uh, this is used elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. Uh, Genesis chapter 29, actually, there's a verse that in the same two sentences, uh, same section, it, it uses this in two different ways. So it says, uh, this is speaking about Jacob's relationship with his two wives, by the way. A side comment, uh, more than one wife has never portrayed anything but negative in Scripture. So just so you know that, this is not trying to say anything positive. It's negative, always negative. But anyhow, uh, it il- illustrates our words. So Jacob, it says, went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. You hear, see how it says that? He loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. He loves Leah. He just loves Rachel more and served uh, Laban for another s- seven years. And then it says in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her room, but Rachel was barren. So, so in the same section, it's saying he loves her more, and then it says she's hated. Well, does that mean that, which does it mean? Does he love her or hate her? Well, comparison to Rachel, uh, he hates her. That, it's, a, it's a matter of degree here, not of absolutes. And so it's communicating, and this sort of language is used in Scripture, a matter of degree. So, so in this context with Esau and Jacob, God is saying that compared to my love for Jacob, I hate Esau. But I love Esau. We see in Scripture elsewhere that God loves all those made in His image. He, he loves all and desires all to know Him. But He pours out His grace in Jacob's life in a powerful way, rescues and redeems Jacob, makes him his own, and through him brings a people to himself. So there's a, an extravagant covenantal love that He has for Jacob that, that brings transformation to Jacob's life and through him brings, uh, brings the people of God into relationship with God. So he's saying, Jacob, have I loved, but Esau, I hated, to the people in Malachi's day, that they would understand that this love he has has been there for a long time. And it's a love coming from his own choice, his own heart. For them, it's undeserved. And he chooses to love them in a greater, more extravagant way than he's loved Esau and his descendants. That's what he's getting at here. So you're complaining about these Edomites, but, but remember this storyline that I have loved Jacob. I chose Jacob. I rescued Jacob. You are my chosen people, my beloved people. Side story in the Bible. The people of God are always to be open to others coming in and believing and being joined to them. So Esau's descendants could have come in that way, but they would only come in through the line of Jacob. And God has loved His people through Jacob. That's what He's reminding them of. Now, whenever we hit these topics in Scripture, for uh, us as Americans, it's hard because we don't like the idea that somebody gets chosen and someone else doesn't, perhaps. And we struggle with it because we have this value of everybody should get a fair chance. Um, and so I just I need to take a little bit of time to address the objection. This whole choosing thing, is it really right? Well, uh, we can say it's not fair. Jacob gets chosen and Esau doesn't get the same. He gets something, but not the same as Jacob. That's just not fair. Well, um, it's actually not fair that Jacob gets chosen either. The fair thing would be that God wouldn't choose either of them. The reality about humankind is we all are rebels against God. We've turned away from Him. We choose our own independence and rebellion and sin instead of Him. And yet, the evidence of God's goodness is all around us, so this is, a, this is a, a bold rebellion. And for some of us, we've grown up around the truths of God, and, and yet we rebelled against those. I, f- I speak for myself. 
And so fairness would be that God wouldn't choose either Jacob or Esau or anyone else. That's what's fair. And God has the prerogative to choose to pour out mercy on Jacob and his descendants and all those who would believe in the ultimate descendant, Jesus. No one deserves God's blessing, but only His righteous, just punishment. God is pure and good and sinless. He's, he's not a tyrant. He's not someone who gets his jollies out of punishment. He's just pure goodness. And none of us can stand before pure goodness if we look at our hearts honestly. So fairness is that nobody gets chosen for anything good. But God is full of mercy. He desires all to be rescued from their own self-imposed exile. And so in His mercy and His wisdom, He reaches out and He rescues people. He chooses to pour out extravagant kindness on undeserving people. And it's His prerogative. Now, I think we get this idea of prerogative. Let me give you an example that you probably bump into. uh, Not the best choice of words, but you bump into every day. That's driving in traffic. Uh, If you're driving down Main Street in Haverhill, and it's during rush four hours, um, and, and there's lots of traffic, and you're driving along, and you come up to a, a cross street or an intersection, and there's cars waiting to pull into the street, um, and you wave somebody in to come in, right? That's a good thing, right? You wave them in, they come in, and, and, and you, know, you keep on going. But is it fair? You have the right of way, actually. Right? So fair is actually just not... You don't have to let anybody in. You can just keep on going. Is it fair that you just let one person in? I mean, that's not really kind, is it? You should actually stop and let everybody in, right? And then you come to the next street 50 feet up, let all them in too, right? And then the next one, you let all them in, right? And then four hours later when you finally get home, you've been fair to everybody, right? We get that, don't we? You have the right of way, and everyone behind you would be like, hey, we got the right of way, would you stop doing that? But in kindness, you let people in. That's your choice. That's your prerogative. Now, by the way, the number that God lets in is countless, it says in Revelation. And to stretch the analogy a little more, uh, it's not quite like that. It's a one-way street leading to what's good and right. And we want to pull onto that street and drive the wrong way. We want to be reckless. And we want to take our monster truck and just kind of run over what God has said to do. And in that context, what would be fair and right to do? To deal with all of us in our rebellion, going the wrong way, driving recklessly. And yet God in His amazing mercy, has, because He loves us with an everlasting love, because He saw us before time and chose to love us, says, I'm going to actually transform this one And He does that in His plan among the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They planned before time that that God would send His only Son to take upon Himself the penalty for your and my reckless driving. To go to the cross to to bear our sins on Himself. to, To satisfy God's justice for our rebellion to pay it in full and then to rise again on the third day in victory over sin and death so that through faith in Him, and here's where the Holy Spirit comes in, in time as that good news gets proclaimed and we hear it, the Spirit of God now 
in concert with the will of the Father and the Son, brings revelation and understanding to us so that we see, oh, wow, I get it. I've been driving the wrong way all these years. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to trust in Jesus now for forgiveness and follow His way. And now God graciously waves us in and says, join this caravan of countless cars walking in my ways. That's the background here. That's what the truth of Scripture teaches us about choosing. It's mercy. It's the mercy of God. And it shows that the love comes from Him. We did not earn it. He, in His extravagant love, chose to bestow it on us. Just as He did with Jacob, He does with us and all who believe in Christ. By the way, these truths are meant to instruct and comfort God's people. If you're not yet a believer, don't worry about whether you're chosen or not. The Scripture never says try to figure that out. There's only one way to know. That is, do you believe? And so the Bible says, whosoever believes will not be condemned. So your focus, your job is to focus on Am I one of the whosoever? Come and receive this gracious invitation in Christ. He wants to wave you in, but it only comes through Christ. Trusting in Christ. Trusting in this good news. Receiving it for yourself. Now, I grew up hearing this good news, but never understood it. And I never knew that I had to exercise personal faith and decision in that to receive it as my own. To say, yes, Jesus, thank You for dying for me, paying for my sins. Now I want to follow You. And so that's all you need to do. That's, that's how you become part of the caravan. That's how you become uh, part of the family. Simply turning away from sin and self and trusting in Christ. And then when you're waved in, you can know, along with Jacob and all God's people, it's ultimately because God has loved you with an everlasting love and therefore He's called you. He's chosen you. And so in Malachi, God wants people to remember these things. And he tells them this in contrast to the Edomites. Now, God in His mercy had chosen to give the Edomites somewhere else to live. They actually are driven from their homeland. They're no longer in their original homeland of Mount Seir. So God's promise of judgment on them has come true. And God, God's judgment on them was deserved. They had done terrible things themselves. And God chose to bring judgment on them and not restore them to the promised land. And that's what's being said here. So when He says, if Edom says we are shattered but we will build the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He's saying, guys, you know what? You need to understand that Edom as a country has suffered My judgment and there's no restoration for them as a country. Which points... Israel to the truth that they have experienced restoration. God has brought them back to their, their land. He's brought the promises of redemption to them. And they live now, even though it's not complete yet, they live in that redemption. So by contrast, Edom got what they deserved. You didn't. You got redemption. So stop comparing yourself to Edom in this way, and realize you've been restored to your land. And all these promises that I've given you, they're going to come true because God is going to be working. He's going to bring Ezra. He's going to bring Nehemiah. He's going to bring rulers. He's going to bring restoration. He's going to bring fresh 
flourishing for them in, in this new post-exilic time. And ultimately, He's going to bring the Messiah through them and to them. And so stop being confused by what you see and let the love of God light your way and restore you from the spiritual slump. God loves to do this. And by the way, much of Scripture is just simply about God doing this for us. Reminding us of His love and choosing us and reminding us of His love and redeeming us. So it says in Ephesians 2, a wonderful example among many of this. It says to you, brother or sister, lost in the storm and suffering a spiritual slump, let the light of His love shine. Listen to what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is where you were. This is where I was. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. God shows His love by reminding us that He's chosen us and He's redeemed us and we're undeserving. We're undeserving of that love. He's loved us that much, that deeply, that powerfully, that effectively. We have to know this love. Final point. We need to know this love. We need to know this love. The, the Israelites of Malachi's day were in grave danger of drowning in malaise, of drowning in compromise, of drowning in their spiritual slump. And so God gives them evidence for His extravagant love. He wants His love, the light of His love, to shine on them again to rescue them from their slump. And it works that way throughout Scripture. God always prefaces His call with a reminder of His grace and His love. So in Exodus in chapter 20, when He gives the law before He says anything, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. I love you. I acted to rescue you. I'm with you. I am the Lord your God. And then he goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. He always acts this way. He always calls us to His love. To see His love. To receive it. To live in His love before anything else. And so we need to ground ourselves in that love. If you're in a spiritual slump, that's how you get out. Let the light shine. The church in Ephesus in Revelation was in a spiritual slump. And so we saw this a little while ago in our series in Revelation. God says to them, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you. Quickly remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
They needed to go back to their first love. They needed to remember how much God has loved them. We love God because He first loved us. They need to return to that first love. If they wanted to find life and if they wanted to be rescued from their slump, and ultimately for this church, it, it was going to be judged and shut down if they didn't return to that love. That's the sort of love that we've been talking about that God wants you to know. He wants you to live in it. He wants you to have it light up your life. Now, guys, the reality, I think, for us to some degree as New Englanders in late winter, it's a tough time. And you may feel just in a slump because of winter stuff. Uh, pastor Jonathan Edwards was a pastor back in the 1700s. Uh, he used the phrase winter doldrums. He recognized that his church when it got to be about February, March. It just kind of, everybody kind of wanted to hibernate and kind of got depressed. And they kind of went into a slump. And maybe you're there. And I mean, I think there are physical reasons for it. We don't see much sunshine. Uh, you only get effective sunshine from late March through late September in New England. And so we've not been in the sun. Our bodies need the sun for many things. Uh, vitamin D being part of that and other things as well. And so we can feel lethargic come February and March. We need the sunshine, the summer sort of sunshine, to get us out of the winter doldrums. Well, we need the sunshine, the light of God's love, to wake us up out of spiritual doldrums. And the intensity of that sunshine is connected to how well we grasp His choosing, redeeming love. That's the connection here in Malachi. You get to know the depth of His love when you understand that He's chosen you when you didn't deserve it. He's loved you from before time and He looked at you and He decided to rescue you. Now His love starts to get pretty big and pretty intense when you realize that it's an eternal love from the, the very heart of the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the sort of love that He has for us. That's intense love. And when we see that it's redeeming love, that, that He rescued us from our sin, He paid a great cost on that cross, dying for sin, bearing the full justice of God for all of our sins, for all of His people. That's a redeeming love. He paid for our sins and rose again so that through faith in Him, we're forgiven and we're made part of the family and now all things are worked for our good. It's redeeming love. That's how you turn up the intensity of the light. And understanding it's a choosing, redeeming love. It's a faithful love. So as the band comes up, we transition. Let me encourage you to consider these important truths in Malachi. Consider them. And recognize that this is God's Word. And this is God's way to get you out of a slump. There might be doctrines here you don't like, but they're meant for your good. So consider it and let the light of God's love shine on your soul. Get with others and talk to them about it. Together, we need each other. And the light gets shown through good fellowship, coming together and talking about these things. Take some time to curl up, maybe by the fire with a warm beverage, and read some good books on these things. I'd start you off with the Gospel Primer, right in on our bookshelf. I would want every single person in our church to have a copy of that, just to... An easy read. You can read a few sentences at a time about the Gospel of Grace. Uh, another great book, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. 
or chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. All great books to curl up with and to see the love of God. Let the love of God warm your heart and revitalize your soul. Let Him rescue you from the winter doldrums as you hear the word of the Lord from Malachi. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love and the intensity of Your love, Your rescuing love. And thank You that You rescue us from the doldrums. And we pray, Lord God, even today, You would do that. And in the coming days as well, teach us how to turn the light up in our lives and in the lives of others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.